Jesus said the Old Testament's about him. And we've already seen uh, the big picture of the Old Testament and the New Testament and how the, uh, the Pentateuch here is showing us the need for a perfect priest. Of course, Jesus is the only perfect priest. So let's look at uh, Exodus chapter 25. Interesting passage here. Exodus 25. Some of you might know that in the Middle East, out there in the wilderness of the Middle East, there's a very special mountain. And the mountain actually has two names. It's kind of, it's kind of like uh, Mount Taranaki, Mount Egmont. Uh, this, this has two names, Mount Horeb, sometimes it's called, as well as Mount Sinai. Here's somebody's painting of it very important place. It's here where God thundered down and uh, he told Moses to come up in Exodus 24. So Moses climbs up the mountain there, Mount Sinai, and Moses waits six days. Six days. He's waiting for direction from God and then God breaks that six-day silence finally. On the seventh day, God spoke to Moses out of the cloud. And uh, here's what God said to Moses. Look at Exodus 25. Exodus 25. Yahweh, that's God's name, Yahweh in Hebrew, said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices, for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. And that ends the introduction of God's instruction to Israel of what they were to do. So the God of Israel, by the way, remember, he's freed them from the the 400 years of captivity in Egypt. They were in bondage. And so now they've come out of Egypt as they're on their way to the promised land that God had promised to Father Abraham and to Israel. And here they they finally come to Mount Sinai, and God gives them the law. You can read that in Exodus 20. They were to live by this law, and God had made a covenant or an agreement with them, with his people Israel, that do this. A very special relationship. And now the God of the universe has declared that he's going to come and dwell with them right in their midst. They're going to live in tents. And God's going to live in, the, in a tent, too. And so while they live in tents, he's dwelling in this, this tent. Notice it's called a 
tabernacle. The tabernacle is of such importance, by the way, to God that he's going to spend about 50 chapters in our Bible telling us what is to take place and how it is to be dressed. He's, uh, it's, I mean, God tells us the entire pattern. He tells us the, the construction of this tent. And he tells us the service and, and all the furniture. 50 chapters in your Bible. That's how important this is. So we need to take note. So nothing's left to Moses' speculation because God reveals it to him in minute detail. Every aspect of the temple was described for us. How were the priests to dress? Where, what furniture was supposed to be there? How do you make the furniture in the tabernacle? What was the covering of the tabernacle supposed to be made of? What are you supposed to do in there? <laughs> and you come to the book of Leviticus, your next book, and it tells you all the different offerings, the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, the sin offerings, the guilt offerings. And then it goes into what are all the priests supposed to be doing in there? It goes into great detail. You can read that later. We don't have time to read 50 chapters right now. So what's the purpose of the tabernacle? Number one, the tabernacle stood as a visual reminder to Israel that they serve the true and living God. See, throughout Israel's history, there was a, a tendency, they had this tendency to, to, to be idol worshipers. And therefore, the, the tabernacle stood as a reminder to them, it stood as a visual that they served God. And so it helped keep Israel from the idol worship that was practiced by those who were living around them. And, it, and it's not long after this, by the way, that they, they go and, you remember Moses is up on the mountain? You can read it just a little bit later. Moses, he goes up on Mount Sinai, and then they, they build the golden calf, and wor- some of the Israelites worship the golden calf. That was their tendency. And so when the tabernacle's there, then all Israel's camped around it and look at it and say, whoa, okay, uh, I'm supposed to worship Yahweh. Every time they see that tent, it was a reminder to worship the true and living God. Number two, the tabernacle showed a sinful people how they could come before a holy God. Remember, God is holy. He's unique. He's distinct. He's separate from all of His creation. There is... No one and nothing else like him. And, and so that although the temple made God somewhat accessible to the Israelites, he was only approachable in holiness. And that's why the word holy and holiness shows up so much in these books, particularly Exodus and Leviticus. So all of the structure, all of the service of the tabernacle was showing Israel how they could worship God. How it showed the the offering of the sacrifices, what was that all about? It was showing that, that death was required for their sin. It showed them how they could receive counsel from God's Word. and So it was, it was a very graphic portrayal of God's redemptive program for Israel. God, God is gracious. What a blessing. He gives us lots of visual reminders. Uh, we're not Israel. But God gives us visual reminders through the Lord's Supper and baptism. We, m- many of us are visual learners, so this is a wonderful blessing. So every aspect of the tabernacle there was pointing to God's redemptive plan. It was pointing to Jesus. 
And that's the next point I want to make is the tabernacle pointed to Jesus Christ. Of course, Jesus understood this truth. He already knew this. And and that's why in, in Luke chapter 24, he says it. In Luke 24, he says, These are my words. He's talking about the Old Testament. These are my words that that I spoke to you while I still was with you, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Notice he mentions the law of Moses. So he's talking about stuff like this. (laughs) Fifty chapters in the law of Moses tells us something about Jesus. It's pointing to him. All right, but let's notice some of the details here. We, we, we don't have time to get into all the 50 chapters, but notice what is the pattern of the tabernacle. You, again, you'll see a painting up on the screen for you there, but the tabernacle was this prefabricated structure that could be moved around the wilderness. They traveled around the wilderness for 40 years. Its construction was a cooperative task between God and the people there, God provided the, tab, uh, the, the pattern of the tabernacle as he said he would do right there in verse 9. Remember, verse 9 says, Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. Read all the next chapters. You can see the pattern. The blueprints, if you will. So the people provided the materials we read about. They, they were to bring this free will offering. They were to come to God with willing hearts. By the way, that's a good pattern for your own giving. Because you read, you read the, the principles of giving in the book of Corinthians. You are to come not grudgingly, but come with cheerful hearts. Give to God out of cheerful hearts. So we should note that Moses was instructed to, to take those free will offerings only if they came from willing hearts. The tabernacle was the focal point of Israel's community and their whole life. They uh, Notice the tribes in the picture. All the 12 tribes of Israel were to be around the tabernacle. It was the center. And then the book of Numbers, your, third, sorry, your fourth book in your Bible, tells us that the number of men in Israel who were 20 years of age and older was over 600,000 people who had come out of Egypt. So you know what that means? If you include uh, women, children, and the mixed multitude who had left Egypt, we're looking at it, a bare minimum, conservative estimate of 2 million, and some think over 3 million people coming out of Egypt. God was blessing Abraham. He was keeping his covenant with Abraham. And so you come to the tabernacle and uh, you can again read the 50 chapters and you'll see the first part what what the people of Israel would see was the outer court again here's a painting of the tabernacle on the screen for you the outer court was 50 meters by 25 meters now to compare that uh, just so you know the inside of the hall here is roughly 12 meters by about 22 meters roughly okay so the outer part of the tabernacle is, is roughly double the size of what you're sitting in currently. 
And so it was enclosed by this fine linen curtain, which was about seven and a half feet tall. So it would be over, uh, over my hand. I can't even reach that high. The curtain was held in place by 60 pillars that were made of acacia wood, and then those wooden pillars were covered with bronze. Each pillar was secured in a bronze socket with cords fastened at the top. They were tied to the ground with bronze stakes. The pillars were made even more secure by using, uh, they, they used the silver bar that connected them near, somewhere near the top of those pillars. And from there, the linen curtains would be hung. It would have been beautiful, very beautiful. The furniture and, and even the placement of that furniture typified the various ministries of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And we, we, we know that in particular because the book of Hebrews helps explain for us what's happening here. It, show, it, it says the tabernacle was only a figure for the time. He was pointing to something bigger, better, and longer lasting. It looked forward to Christ. And so the earthly tabernacle was only a copy of the true tabernacle, which is in heaven, where Christ is our high priest. You don't believe me? Here's what God says about it in Hebrews 9, verse 23. Look at this. Hebrews 9, 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Do you see how the tabernacle was a shadow pointing to the, the reality which is in heaven. <laughs> well, I hope you can see that. And so, if you were to walk in through that, that outer curtain, the first piece of furniture that you would be greeted with is the bronze altar. Again, you'll see a painting on the screen here. On that altar, there were very important things that took place, and Many people think the whole point of this was to show that God saved sinners. Because remember, the wages of sin is death. Death was required for the covering of your sin. And so that's what took place on that altar. And so this bronze altar is standing there in that outer courtyard. And of course, it would have poles that would go in the loops. And so that's how they were to transport it. And it was... It was a hollow wooden box that was overlaid with bronze. It measured about one and a half meters by 2.3 meters long by 2.3 meters wide. There was a bronze grate on the top and on the sides of the altar. So this is the place. It, was, it would have been disgusting, <laughs> all the sacrifices taking place there, but... The animal sacrifices were, were taken there to that altar. And the blood would be shed. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, Hebrews says, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so that bronze altar typified the perfect Lamb of God who would come some 1,400 years later. His name was Jesus. 
And when he came, he gave his blood when he died on the cross. So all who put their faith in his his death and his resurrection and his blood would be justified and receive remission of sins. That's what Romans tells us in chapter 3. Look at this. Because it says that we, the, the believers, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. It's not by works, it's by faith. Now why did God do this? Notice he says, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. What former sins? All those former sins of the Israelites who who had the animals sacrificed on the altars for hundreds of years. By the way, just as it was impossible for the Israelites to come into God's presence without sacrificing at the bronze altar, so it's impossible today for anybody to come into the presence of God without the ministry of Jesus. Jesus' ministry at the cross provides and paves the way for you to come into God's presence. Well, the next thing, the next piece of furniture in the tabernacle was the bronze basin. Again, you'll see a painting of that. Showing us that God cleanses sinners. Of course, the water never really took care of their sin, but it was, it was a picture of God dealing with sin and cleansing the sin. And so this bronze basin was, again, there in the outer courtyard. It was between the altar and the tabernacle proper. And so the basin was provided there, and it was only for the priest. And so the priests would come and they would have to wash their hands before they entered into the tabernacle. And so that basin is speaking of Christ as our sanctification. We're being cleansed. We're being set apart from our sin unto God. And so as believer priests, we are reminded that Christ has sanctified us for His service. And He is sanctifying us. And how does He do that? He is cleansing us from the daily defilement of our sin. According to Ephesians 5, look at verse 26 here. Because it says that Christ might sanctify the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. So it's not water that washes us. It's the Bible, the Scripture that is washing you and setting you apart from your sin. It's setting you apart to God. See, Christ wants a holy bride, a blameless bride, a beautiful bride. And so then after you go past the bronze basin, you would come to the tabernacle proper. Again, you'll see a picture on the screen here showing us that, see, here's God living among sinners. He's right there in their midst. He's right in the center of the whole camp. This entire tabernacle tent was, wasn't that big, really. It was only 5 meters by 14 meters by 5 meters high. So, so I, that's less than the, than the roof peak here. That's less than this hall that you're sitting in. 
And so this tabernacle proper was divided into two sections. It had the holy place and then the holy of holies. It had a wooden skeletal structure, of course, overlaid with gold. It had no solid roof. Uh, there was five wooden bars that were overlaid with gold. There was uh, passed uh, through rings that were attached to each of the frames. It must have been beautiful as you read your, the Bible's description of this place. Uh, that, that's from the ESV study Bible there. You can see, just imagine taking a big, huge knife and cutting halfway through it. That's what it looked like. Beautiful place. But the Israelites never got to see it. It was only the priests who got to go in there. And so the first part was, called, remember, it was called the holy place. And again, you'll see someone's uh, CGI description here of it. So it had four coverings. There was this inner lining of embroidered fine twine linen. There was woven goat hair covering over that linen. And then they had ram skin that was dyed red. And then they had a waterproof porpoise skin that was placed on top of that. Must have been heavy. <laughs> must have been very heavy, but it must have been beautiful. The holy place was, was entered through the, uh, a place called the door. There were three pieces of furniture as you walked into the holy place. You can see them in that picture there. And of course, they typify our fellowship with Christ. So the, the, the first thing they would come to here would be the table of showbread. Again, you'll see a PowerPoint of that. The good news is that God fellowships with sinners. God fellowships with sinners. And so the, the table of showbread was, was on the right side of the holy place. There were to be 12 loaves of bread on that table. This was representing this meal offering. And, and you say, well, why 12 loaves of bread? Well, that's because there were 12 tribes of Israel. And the showbread was typifying Christ. And the Bible says Christ is the, the one who came down from heaven. And the Bible says all who partake of him have eternal life. Christ is the bread of life. Jesus said he is the bread of life. And he's the one who sustains every believer who feeds on him. Jesus said in John 6 verse 51, he said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, you don't need to literally eat Jesus' body. <laughs> That's not what he meant. But figuratively, we, those who are trusting in Christ are partaking of him there was a second piece of furniture there in the holy place it's the golden lampstand or some of you might call it the menorah where we see that God gives light to the sinners see they didn't have electricity right they didn't have solar panels on sitting on top of the, the tabernacle right so they had the, the golden lampstand the menorah in there where, where the light was shining and so on the left side, there was this seven-branched lampstand. It was made of pure gold. It would have been hammered out just one piece into one piece. 
resting on a base there. It, it also had a central stem and then six branches, three on each side, total of seven. The lampstand with its branches was modeled on a flowering almond tree, by the way, is my understanding. And you say, well, what was the point of that? Why did God tell them to build that and to build it that way? Remember, it, it's speaking of Christ. Christ says it's, it's pointing to Him. Christ said He is the light of the world. And all who trust in Him are given the light of life. Where did He say that? Well, two chapters later, after He talks about Himself being the bread. In John 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And what are we to do with that light? Jesus is the light. What do we do with it? We're to hold up the light in a dark world, is what we're supposed to do. Why? So that people see your good works and glorify you? No, you, you, know, that's, you know that's not right. Because Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 14, He says, You, plural, are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's why God gives you the light. So think of yourself as a mirror as a reflector of the one true light of course who is Jesus you're just mirroring reflecting him to a dark world well there's a third piece of furniture there in that holy place called the altar of incense and incense in the bible often is referred to prayer and so the idea is here God is hearing their prayers he hears sinners even though they are sinners and so the ESV Study Bible says this, quote, The wooden altar overlaid with pure gold was one meter by half a meter by half a meter. It was transported by means of wooden poles which were overlaid with gold and inserted through rings attached to the sides of the altar, end quote. Notice that they, they weren't really allowed to touch these things. They all had these rings and they were supposed to put poles through them as they transported them and the altar of incense was there in that holy place. It was, by the way, notice its position is right in front of the veil which led into the Holy of Holies. And they would have burning coals there on the bronze altar. And, uh, and so they would have the incense burning there. And then they would put uh, uh, on those coals, sorry, on the coals they would put this incense and and the, and the sweet incense would be poured on there daily, and it would go up before the Holy of Holies, God's special place of presence. So the smoke from that incense would just keep going up and up, representing the prayers of God's people. You say, well, how do you know that? Because the Bible tells us <laughs> that uh, incense is a, is a wonderful thing to God because for example in Revelation 5 verse 8 it says look at this on the screen when he had taken the scroll that's Jesus Jesus takes the scroll and he's 
and the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. What's the incense? Notice it says that that it's the prayers of the saints. And so the, the altar there typified Christ, our high priest, who is interceding for us before the Father's throne. See, you and I can't go directly to God, just like Israel couldn't go directly to God. Israel wasn't allowed into the Holy of Holies either. They needed a high priest to go into the Holy of Holies. One man of all out of Israel was allowed in there only one time a year. And of course, Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the superior high priest. He's the one who goes into the the true tabernacle, which is in heaven. Here's what Hebrews 7, verse 25 says, talking about Jesus, that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Sometimes we think of Jesus' ministry as finished. It's all done, right? Because when Jesus was on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. Well, that's true. I'm not going to disagree with Jesus. But Jesus' ministry continues on our behalf as our high priest. Yes, his death was finished. (laughs) That part of his ministry was finished. Mission accomplished. But you can thank God that his ministry continues on. He always lives to make intercession for believers. Well, if you were able, as a priest of Israel, to walk into the holy place, then you would come and you would walk past the incense there, and you would come to the veil, this big curtain, blocking the way into the the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, and And that was teaching that God is separate from sinners. He's holy. He's distinct. He's unique. He's separate, right? You can't just walk into his presence whenever you want. Well, not not during this time period anyway. And so God's separate. There's a very heavy veil that hung between the holy place and the holy of holies, separating God's people who were sinful from a holy God. And of course, the Bible says that Christ represents the veil too. And so when Christ died on the cross, did you notice what happened to the veil that was in Jerusalem's temple? Right in the heart of Jerusalem is a temple. Jesus dies on the cross. What happens to the veil blocking the way into the Holy of Holies? It rips from top to bottom. Can you imagine being a priest there in the temple? doing your work because there was a lot of sacrificing taking place during that time it's Passover time imagine being a priest in there and seeing the temple rip in two or sorry not the temple the veil they're probably thinking I'm a dead man I'm I'm in big trouble and that's what happens Why, why did that happen that wasn't an accident God ripped it he opened the way That whole system here that was pointing to Jesus now comes to an end. Because look what Hebrews 10 verse 19 says. 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, how do we enter? We enter by the blood of Jesus. Jesus sheds his blood on the cross. Now you get to enter. (laughs) What difference is Christ's blood made for us today? Well, here's, here's the difference, my friends. Look at Hebrews 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you need mercy? Do you need grace? I do. Whether you recognize it or not, you need it. You need God's unmerited favor. You need it desperately. The only way you're going to get that is by drawing near to the throne of grace, God's throne, which is only accessible through Jesus. Okay, well then you come into the the last room, a very tiny room, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. Again, you'll see someone's depiction of what that looks like there behind the veil. And so the ESV study Bible says this, quote, the most holy place of the tabernacle was only 4.6 meter cube. So that, that's only like half the size of this width of this room, by the way. It's not, not very big. In there you had the Ark of the Covenant. And it was here that Yahweh would descend to meet with his people in a cloud theophany, which is just a divine appearance, end quote. So like I said, if you were the high priest, you could walk into the Holy of Holies and you would see the Ark of the Covenant. That was the place where, where God reigns. It was a very special place. Inside that Holy of Holies, Sorry, inside the Ark of the Covenant, there were a few things inside there. It was just a rectangular box that was covered with gold inside and out. On top of the Ark, though, were, were two cherubim, or a special kind of an angel. Those two angels were facing each other, but they were looking down toward the mercy seat. They, would, they had their wings stretched out over the mercy seat. And it was on that mercy seat that the high priest, as he walked into the Holy of Holies, he would sprinkle blood on that mercy seat. Remember, he only went in one time a year. One day a year. The Day of Atonement. And so he would go in there. Why did he do that, by the way? It was just enacting something. He was, it was showing that uh, the act enabled God to cover the sins of the people. So while the high priest was inside, the people waited patiently outside the tabernacle. Uh, From what we read, apparently they wondered whether the the high priest would come out alive. And if he came out alive, they could rejoice and praise God. Woohoo! He's alive because God accepted the sacrifice. We have another year of acceptance with God, right? And so if he, if he appeared, God accepted that blood atonement. Their sin was covered for another year. And you say, well, is there a connection to Christ in all of this? Of course there is. <laughs> Christ is our great high priest. What did he do? He goes and he offers his own blood. So he's the sacrifice and the priest all at the same time. And he does it and he 
once and for all puts away sin, past, present, and future. That's what Hebrews 7.24 tells us. It says that he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So, again, notice, not only is Christ a believer's high priest, but Christ is the propitiation. That that just means he's your wrath absorber. See, God's wrath comes on sinners. They deserve God's condemnation because they're guilty. But, But it's like Christ gets in the way and absorbs that wrath. And then Christ satisfied the righteous demands of a holy God. Judgment must take place because of sin. God's not going to overlook the sin. And so Christ opened the way for us to be forgiven of our sin. That's what the Bible says in Romans 3.25. Because it says, Whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a wrath absorber. How did He do that? It's by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. Now some of you might read these 50 chapters in your Bible and and you might really struggle with this. Some people even skip over them when they're reading through the Bible in a year. Sometimes, ooh, I don't want to read about that. So what is the point? There is a point to this. The pattern of the tabernacle was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. How did he do that? Christ justifies us by His blood. He cleanses us. He feeds us through the living Word. Lights the path before us. The Bible says Christ intercedes for believers. And so because of Christ now, you know what? You have a high priest who, who, who's, who's now made it possible for you to have access. You have access through the veil into the throne of grace, into the Holy of Holies, that you can obtain mercy, and now you can receive forgiveness of your greatest problem, which is your sin. So the tabernacle had a lot of symbols, a lot of types going on there. They're all shadows pointing to Jesus Christ who tabernacled in this world. He came and He lived amongst us some 30 plus years. Opens the way for God to bring redemption to mankind. And I want you to see how the writer of Hebrews here, by the way, he sums up the ministry of Christ for us in Hebrews 9, verse 11. Look at this on the screen. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, what what tent is he talking about? Brackets. Well, it's not the one that was made with hands. (laughs) That is not of this creation. So what did he do? He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. And what did he accomplish? Look at this. Thus securing an eternal redemption. What does redemption mean? It means that Jesus bought you from the slave market of sin. You you stand guilty. You're in bondage. You're in slavery. You have no hope unless a good master comes along and buys you. Jesus bought you with his blood. That was the payment. 
And so some people look at this and say, well, okay, is there, yeah, I know Hebrews talks a lot about this, but is there a connection here in the New Testament? Yeah, there's a lot of connections, not just Hebrews. See, the tabernacle in, in, in some ways prefigured the church. And by church, I, I mean, what, what's the church? I don't refer to a building or programs and that sort of thing. I'm talking about Christians when I say the church. Believers, true believers in Christ. And, and even the Apostle Paul makes this connection between the tabernacle and the church in the book of Hebrews. No, not Hebrews, Ephesians. No, that was not a Freudian slip, in case you're wondering. He, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 says this. So then you, he's talking about the church at Ephesus, you, the church, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. I underlined holy temple for you. I'm highlighting the holy temple part. But notice the holy temple part, as it goes on, to say that in Him, Christ, you the church, also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You're a temple. You see that? You're a tabernacle. You become this special place where God dwells. Isn't that cool? So the word temple there is just, just means it's an inner sanctuary. Think of it it's the same idea as the Holy of Holies. So you become the new Holy of Holies because God ripped the veil in two when Jesus died on the cross. And so today, today, my friends, God does not dwell in a physical structure. Have you noticed God destroyed the temple in Jerusalem in 70 A.D.? God sent the Romans. He destroyed the temple. There hasn't been a temple since 70 A.D. There will, there's going to be one rebuilt during the tribulation, but there isn't one there currently. Because God is showing us many things. He is the most important thing. There is now a spiritual body called the church. And so just as the tabernacle was to be holy and was to be set apart for God's service, guess what? So likewise, the church should be holy, distinct, separate, unique. The church is to be consecrated to God's service, just as the tabernacle and the temple were. But nowadays, God dwells in each believer. Each believer is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And together we are the temple. God is forming us, as Ephesians 2 here says. He's growing us. He's, he's joining us together, forming us into His temple. And that's a tremendous privilege. And with that privilege comes a lot of responsibility, too. You need to meditate upon that, think about that. What does that mean? What are the implications of that? And so this tremendous privilege should cause us to live holy lives. You're to be holy. You are to be distinct, unique, and separate. 
just as God is holy, unique, distinct, and separate. You are a holy temple. Go be one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for making us a holy temple. May we see this as not as an individual thing. Yes, <laughs> yes, we certainly have the presence of the Holy Spirit. May we not forget that. But may we also not forget that we, plural, are this holy temple. You have joined together. You're the one who's growing this church, this bride of Christ. May we understand the significance of this and that there is something far bigger and better and longer lasting than what we see in these 50 chapters here in our Bible. Yes, may we understand the significance of this, but may we see how it points to Christ. Thank you for the visual. Many of us are visual learners, and this is a wonderful blessing you've given to us, but may we take that and then, and then just go beyond that to the spiritual truth and significance that is important for us. Would you help us, enable us to understand the privilege here and the responsibility, cause us to live holy lives. We would be light, we are light, but may we not hide that light so we would bring honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.